Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and I got to be honest with you, in 32 episodes, this has happened one time, but I actually lost the podcast. Uh, I was recording it, we were going through the lesson, and I got a call and it deleted it. So um, I can't believe this is the first time it's happened, but it has happened. And so I felt like I should at least record somewhat of a summary of what we discussed tonight. And I want to apologize to the Carpinettis. They had uh, contacted me and said that they would be listening. They just had a baby. And uh, so this is really for you guys and maybe the six or seven others that listen to this. Um, And maybe it'll be better because this was a really long kind of marathon lesson on Romans chapters 5 through 8. A lot in here. And I tried to, uh, at least I thought I tried to edit it down. But obviously it was a ton of material, so probably close to an hour. So I'm just going to kind of read and hit the high points. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff that we did cover tonight. And uh, that will remain uh, in the the ether and it won't be on the podcast. So I I know what I need to do next time to make sure this doesn't happen again. But let me just go ahead and jump in and uh, real quickly summarize uh, last week when David taught on Romans 1 through 4 and just read these statements mostly from uh, the uh, Bible Project posters. But Romans 1 says that all humanity is trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. Romans 2 says rescue won't happen by obeying the laws of the Torah, and there are 613 of them. Romans 3, God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. Romans 4, to create the faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham. Romans 4, in uh, simplest terms, covers separation or sin and justification or being made right or being shown to be righteous. Romans 5, 8, which is what we'll talk about tonight, 5 through 8, focuses in on sanctification. That is the act by which we are made more like Jesus daily. Um, we would show the Bible Project video at this point. We watched that. You can look that up online and follow along with your poster. And on into Romans 5, uh, we talked about peace with God through faith in verses 1 through 5. Specifically, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Talked a lot about peace tonight and how for me personally I struggle at finding peace. Um, I think it's easy for very small things to throw me off peace. And without peace it's hard to find joy. But in the grandest possible sense it is through sin that we have enmity with the creator of all this, with God. Uh, We have sinned against him and that should be the peace that we're most concerned about. The war that we would have with a God that we sin against and yet God has given us peace through the redeeming uh, love of His Son's sacrifice. And so we are no longer at war with God. We're no longer at odds with God. We are justified. And so in that, we have peace, and we should take great joy in that, as it says in Philippians 4. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our hearts and our minds should be guarded as we are in Christ Jesus. Um, In verses 2 and 3, it says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in our sufferings. And it's easy to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's good stuff. Much harder to rejoice in sufferings. He also says that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And that is tough, but that is a pattern that he lays out. All right, so then moving on. Ask the discussion question, would you die for someone you know personally and who you love? Most people said, yeah, <laughs> reluctantly. And then the next question is, would you give up your life for a good person, but one that you didn't know personally? Most of us said, probably not, maybe. 
Well, the uniqueness of Christ and His sacrifice is that He died for someone He didn't know personally. He didn't know us face to face, let's say. And we weren't even good people. But He loved us anyway and He died for us anyway. So He died for us even though we didn't deserve it. So Romans 5, 8 and 5, 10, they summarize that. And then in verses 12 through 21, uh, Paul sets up this contrast between Adam and Christ. And basically, as humans, we are in Adam. Okay, but it's only by our new birth that we're in Christ. Adam means literally humanity, and so like all humanity, and like Adam, we have chosen sin and selfishness, and as a consequence, we face God's judgment. Jesus, though, is the new Adam, and so Adam is humanity. We are in Adam as humans. We are in Jesus through baptism and uh, through His Spirit, and in that way, we take on the life of a new humanity. Jesus is the new Adam, or the second Adam. And so Jesus offers life as a gift freely to others. Um, and so we are justified before God. We're no longer at odds with God. And so in Adam, there is death. In Christ, there is life. We also discussed original sin, and this, uh, I won't go into all the depth of this, but it originated with St. Augustine in part uh, on a mistranslation in the Latin translation of the Greek Bible. This is called the Vulgate. Jerome translated this. It was used in the late 4th century. It would have been what St. Augustine was studying and based his belief of original sin on this, which was perpetuated down the line. Um, it was also the official uh, Catholic Church Bible during the 16th century. And it's a misinterpretation uh, of Romans 5.12, which says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, uh, because all sinned. And I don't think that Paul is making a statement on original sin, meaning that you're born literally with sin, or that you're born uh, separated. Um, I think what he's saying is, is that, as you see in verse 14, which follows, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So he typifies humanity again. And so what Paul is saying is, is that in the same way that Adam sinned, um, so we sin. So sin is common to all people, not because of Adam's sin, like we inherited it, or like from our father we receive sin, or that we're guilty because of sins of other people, um, but the desire to sin is common to all people. So it's not through Adam that we're made sinners. Instead, in the same way that Adam sinned, so have we all. All right, so we also had some quotes throughout, and I'll read these, but John Piper says, the reason we can always rejoice in God is not because the Christian life is an easy life. It isn't. The reason is that the glory of God is great beyond all imagining, and in Jesus Christ, it is rock sure. Our gospel truth for this section is justification by faith creates a new humanity. We are now in Christ. All right, Romans 6, moving on. Uh, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? This is a question Paul asks. Well, no. Um, and it's actually in 1 Corinthians, another book written by Paul. There was a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Well, that's not good, and they were kind of using this excuse, well, we're under grace now, we're not under the law, so why not sin it up, basically? And uh, you can understand that someone who lived under the law for thousands of years, as Israelites had, would feel a huge release upon feeling like they were no longer held to the standards of the law. Just like if you're a senior in high school and the last day of class, you throw all your you know, books and papers in the trash can, and it's a huge kind of freeing moment or when you graduate from dental school or college or whatever, you just feel this huge release. They would have felt that. But what Paul is saying is don't go on sinning. And he says that in 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Uh, also made the point that, you know, you remember these like be like Mike advertisements where you want to be like Mike, you want to wear his shoes and maybe his shirt, maybe his wristband, you want to drink Gatorade like Mike and eat Wheaties and things like that. That's not how we should treat Jesus. It's not something we're trying to imitate. Uh, we are supposed to be in Christ, and so we're supposed to take on the very nature of Christ. And so if we wake up, we want to sin, or it's on a weekend, and we make bad decisions, uh, we're not being in Christ, and certainly we're not imitating Him. But this goes against our core identity if this is what we're about. And we're no longer filled with the Spirit if that's the way that we live. And the fruits of the Spirit are evident. The fruits of the sinful nature are different. And it comes down to this is, who are we serving? Uh, who are we slaves to? Are we slaves to sin? Or are we slaves to righteousness? Romans 6.15-16 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if, you are, uh, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So again, we are slaves to sin, and that leads to destruction and death. Uh, or we're slaves to righteousness, and that leads to sanctification and eternal life. In Christ, we are now free from sin, so we don't need to be slaves to it any longer. Romans 6.23, a very famous verse, is, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Christ Jesus our Lord. The work that we've put in, the wages for that, in our pay stub would show that we have sinned, and we've sinned a lot, and the wage for that is death. But we don't get that. We inherit or we receive a free gift from God that is eternal life. It's not what we deserve. So we've put hours and hours of sin in. We deserve death. That's our wage. That's what we've earned. But we don't get what we earn or what we deserve. We get a gift that we don't deserve from God, and that's eternal life. Most of this section on baptism, uh, I'll kind of push through that because we, we have a lot more to get through. But Basically, the word for baptism in the Koine Greek is baptizo, which means to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, or to cleanse by dipping or submerging. There are two words, rantizo and ekeo, which mean, in turn, to sprinkle or to pour out. And that's not the word that was used. It was transliterated by the translators of the King James Bible because King James himself was of a church that would sprinkle. And so they took the word baptizo and they transliterated it into the word baptize. It created a word. And I think in that it has lost some of its meaning and it's obscured what that word actually means. There is a direct correlation to water, for sure, and also into immersion, so being actually dipped below the water. And what happens in baptism is that we experience death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, thematically, we go under the water. We die, in a sense, metaphorically. And then we're raised to walk in newness of life. We also receive remission of sins. Now, John's baptism... It, remitted sins. Um, it was a sort of like a ceremonial cleansing. Uh, but then the third thing is that we receive the Holy Spirit. That's different than John's baptism. And so this uh, Christian baptism, the baptism that followed Jesus, it included the Holy Spirit, which is a, a much bigger thing and which allows for sanctification. So it's not just a once-for-all thing where we're cleansed. Uh, we're also justified. We're pardoned. And then the Spirit allows us to uh, be sanctified with time. Lastly, we're incorporated into the church. This is not the most important thing of baptism, I would say, but it is a part of baptism. Um, and so if all baptism is about is, well, it's just something you do to join the church or to go public, uh, that misses a lot of the point of baptism. And also it's not to say that baptism is what saves you or that human act is what makes you right in God's eyes furthest from the point, um, but it is a part of that process. And so the water cleanses us outwardly, but God does the uh, work of the inner cleansing for sure.
Okay, so Tim Keller says this, Do God's will not because it is exciting, though it will eventually be an adventure, not because it will meet your needs, though it will eventually be a joy, not because you understand why this is the path of wisdom, though it will eventually become more clear. Do it because He is your Lord and Savior, and you are not. Do it because it is the law of the Lord, and if you do it, if you obey Him even in the little things, you will know God, uh, know yourself, find God's grace, love your neighbor, and simply honor Him as God. Not a bad deal. And the gospel truth is we are joined with Jesus in baptism. What's true of him is now true of us. Romans 7. We have been released from the law. And so there's a lot of verses here that talk to that. Uh, Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Uh, so even though we've been released from the law, the law makes us aware of sin, and it makes us want to break the law. That's the uh, paradox of the law. Uh, the law in and of itself is not bad. It makes us aware of bad things, and it also makes us want to do bad things. It's sort of like a cookie jar. If you know there are cookies in a cookie jar and you're a kid, you want nothing more than to get into that cookie jar. If you didn't think there were cookies in there or that it was something your parents had not told you, you know, they had not said, don't get in the cookie jar, you probably wouldn't even think about it. But knowing that it's there and knowing that there's a rule, you want to break it. It's like a speed limit. If it says 45, I want to drive 50. If it says 35, I want to drive 40. So laws, they provoke us in a way. And so the Israelites, they had the Torah, and they still broke all those laws. They were still sinful. Romans 7, 7 through 8, What then shall we say, that, law, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet the law, uh, sorry, covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So why do we do the things that we shouldn't? There's a lot of great sections on this. Uh, Paul says in 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 7, 19-20, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Doesn't this sound like someone who is a slave to sin? Our master, if it is sin, will tell us what to do, and we have to do it. So don't let that be our master. The law is not special, it is not good, it is not bad, it is what it is. It is a, you know, a list of rules. It will not make us holy, and adhering to those laws will not. We can't adhere to them perfectly, and no one has. Um, a quote uh, from John Piper, Oh, the perils of not knowing our sin. There's a great sadness that comes from not being saddened by knowing our sin. There's a great pain that comes to the soul, and to the marriage, and to the family, and to the church, and to the world from not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. There's a great self-destruction that comes from not experiencing the self-devastation of knowing our sin. There's an eternal loss that comes from not losing our pride and the knowledge of our sin. If there is any hope and any faith and any joy and peace and love, it will come from knowing our sin. So get to know your sin. That is countercultural. I think we surround ourselves with people that will tell us that we're good, that we're not guilty, that we don't need to take responsibility, and that leads ultimately to not good stuff. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to joy. Um, and what Piper's saying here is, is actually accepting that we're sinful, humbling ourselves, that leads to those things that we want so badly. The gospel truth for chapter 7, the law is good and shows God's will, but it is powerless at fixing our sinful nature. Romans 8, let's finish up strong. Uh, Romans 8, so chapter 8 is very hard to summarize. Uh, John Piper, he spent a whole year just teaching on this chapter alone, and we're going to do it in about 10 minutes. We did tonight. I'm going to do it in about 5. So 
Um, so let me just quickly get through this, is that the solution to the problem of sin that we've talked about all night is Jesus and the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no con condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8.16, again about the Spirit. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So the Spirit does a lot for us. Uh, and then it sets up this idea of the flesh versus the Spirit. The flesh is sarkikos in Greek. Um, spirit is, I think, uh, some sort of like pneuma. Or, uh, I shouldn't have gone for that. I'm not a Greek expert. <laughs> um, but Romans 8, 5 through 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For uh, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, this idea of of living by the flesh or by sin versus living by the spirit or by righteousness. Those are the two clear, you know, the, it's the duality of nature. It's, it's the good and the bad, the yin and the yang. Um, so those who live according to the flesh and those who set their minds on the things of the flesh are those who are worldly. They're slaves to sin. They're hostile to God and do not keep God's law. And this leads to death. Of course, living according to the spirit leads to life and peace. And if we are in Christ, we should no longer live according to the flesh, but rather we should live by the Spirit. And this is what sanctification is all about. Uh, a couple of my favorite verses in the Bible, um, 8, 38-39, are my two favorite verses, and ones that I've always said since I was a teenager, these are my favorites. But first, 8:31, another great verse is, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it's a rhetorical question, and granted, Everyone could be against us in a temporary sense, in a short-term sense. They certainly were against the Roman Christians. They were persecuted. The Jewish version were kicked out of the city for five years. So certainly, who can be against us? Everybody, okay? Um, but that won't compare. Present sufferings uh, that we endure don't compare to our future glory. So in a long-term sense, if God is on our team, let's say you know the Cleveland Cavaliers, if LeBron is on that team, they got a shot at winning every year. As soon as he's off, they got no shot in the world. So in that sense, if God is on our team, we're a team of scrubs, but God joins our team, uh, who can be against us? Who can beat us? In verse 37, it says, We are more than conquerors because God turns everything, even suffering and death, into good. And then my favorite verse is 8, 38-39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in conclusion, the two greatest commandments of the law, you probably know these, Matthew 22, 36-38, the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus has paid our debt, the wages of our sin, which is death. We have peace because of that. We're no longer at war. We're no longer at odds with God. Because of this, we are free to love God and to love our neighbor. And this is what God has wanted from us. This was his plan for creation. And we messed it up. So God wants to renew creation. He wants to renew it to where it was. He wants to have a place where love, his love, gets the final word and the final say. The first step in that is the renewal of all human beings. And that starts with sanctification, which is what we talked about tonight. 
We should be slaves to righteousness. We should live by the Spirit and not be slaves to sin or, or people who live by uh, our sinful nature and by our flesh. So next week, Grant will cover chapters 9 through 11. That's how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. Some really deep theological waters there. And then lastly, David will wrap things up with chapters 12 through 16. That's how the gospel unifies the church. I appreciate you for listening in. This was the abridged version, 20 minutes it looks like, as opposed to an hour. That's a pretty good deal, so you save some time there. If you listen to it at like two times speed, you really got some time. Uh, We'd love to see you guys back next week. Hope everyone's doing okay. If the Carpenters are out there listening, hope you guys are doing all right. Look forward to seeing y'all soon. And uh, we'll see you Monday nights at 6.30 with MDDDS. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.